You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 125, covering the week of June 11th through June 15th, 2018. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. You can like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute. And you can subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville INST. If you don't want to find all those things, go out to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you got all our social media buttons. Click on those. It'll take you right out to our social media accounts. And while you're there, you can give us an email address, and we'll give you a free ebook, Kirkpatrick Sales Emancipation Hell. And you get our daily dose of VXC Money through Friday and a weekly email with a link to this podcast in it. Also, don't forget we exist on your generous contributions alone, so please consider making a tax-deductible donation to the Abbeville Institute. We do have a new donor interface, and I know that uh, there was a couple of issues with it, so those have been corrected. Uh, But just go out to our donor interface page. At the top of the page, you'll see a button that says Support. Click on that, and it'll say Donor Options. If you click on that, you can donate as little as $3 a month or $5 a month if you want to donate monthly or as little as $25 a year or $50 a year if you'd like to donate annually. And, of course, the lower amount is for students. We prefer that only students donate at those levels. Also, we have our summer school coming up July 15th through 20th, 2018, Seabrook Island, South Carolina. The topic is Southern Identity Through Music. It's going to be a great time. We've got Bobby Horton coming as our featured speaker on Wednesdays. On Wednesday night, of course, our banquet and uh, also we have a number of other great speakers, including yours truly. It's going to be a, a fun time. It's going to be, I think, an interesting topic, but also a fun topic because there's going to be a lot of music involved, of course. So it's it's going to be a blast. Also, don't forget we have our application where you can get this podcast along with our lectures. And, of course, it's our mobile link to the website. Just going out to your favorite application store, Google Play, iTunes, whatever the case may be, and get your Abbeville Institute app. And we have our Abbeville Institute Apparel. If you'll go to the top of our page where it says support, you've also got a button that says shop. Click on that. You can get your Abbeville Institute t-shirts, hats, golf shirts, golf towels, all kinds of cool stuff. So it's all embroidered, high-quality material. It will last a long time. So go on out there and get your Abbeville Institute uh, apparel and proudly support the Institute as you are going around town. Okay, well, all that said, we had a really good week at the Institute. I think it all comes down to one particular topic, and that is, were Southerners traitors during the war? And um, even the material at the end of the week that doesn't seem to fit that particular topic does fit that topic, and I'll explain why. But uh, we actually had the Wednesday piece, um, which I'll get into in in a few minutes, was one of the best talks we had at our conference in February this year in Charleston, South Carolina. So if you don't attend those conferences, you should. You get material like this. Uh, we've got the uh, link to the video, or at least the, the video itself, under the talk so you can see uh, Aaron Wolf deliver the talk in person. It's it's uh, well worth your time to watch it. It was quite a good speech when he gave it, but we've also got the text of it as well. So I'll be getting into that in just a minute. But um, this idea that somehow Southerners were traitors in 1860 and 61, is a current position. It doesn't matter if you're on the left or on the right. In fact, I would say that the right, quote-unquote right, the neoconservative right, are greater proponents of this position than the left even. 
it's expected from the left to have this position because, of course, they have a political agenda. If you can call Southerners traitors and you can uh, tar them with the charge of white supremacy or racism, well, that makes good politics for them because then, of course, anyone who supposedly um, uh, uh, supports these positions or you can even say does support these positions becomes an enemy of progress. And so that works well for the left. But the problem is you have the neoconservatives who have simply fallen in line. They're the, they're the, the collaborators, the conspirators in all of this. Uh, they are, it's like the, the alien occupation comes in, and these people are falling all over themselves to just prove themselves to the alien occupiers. It's, they are as much of a problem, in fact, more of a problem than the occupiers themselves because they're the ones who are supposed to be helping the people who are being occupied. And yet... They go out of their way to prove themselves to the occupiers, to their overlords, that they're just as good as they are. They're just as progressive as them. Uh, it's just that they think that the aliens are maybe going a little too far, so they're going to soften some things. But at the end of the day, the aliens are just going to wipe them out too. This is the problem with the neoconservatives who, who espouse this type of nonsense. And it all goes back to Lincoln. I mean, really, that's that's the major problem. If you can destroy this this mythological admiration of Lincoln, you can destroy this, uh, this righteous cause mythology in America. But that's going to be, that's a, that's a daunting task. And it's because Lincoln transformed America with the Gettysburg Address. And so uh, you have a situation where uh, you've got the right being more vindictive about calling, uh, calling Jefferson Davis or Robert Lee traitors than than the left. Again, you expect it from the left. And if it's only coming from the left, you just cast it aside as being stupidity. And it's all a stupidity even coming from the neoconservatives. But the problem is the neoconservatives control uh, Conservative Inc., which is your talk shows, your television programs, your Fox News legend and lies, right? The, the, um, this quote-unquote Civil War series that's going on on Fox News that supposedly has a conservative slant in the war, but it doesn't. It's Brian Kilmeade. I mean, this is conservative ink. This is what passes for conservatism today. And it, it's, it's completely alien to real American conservatism. In fact, once you take the red pill, so to speak, you can't, you can't understand the war without looking at the South as being the conservatives, the real America, and Lincoln's radical transformation of America taking place. Of course, buttressed by the Republican Party, which has never been conservative, ever. It's not even conservative today. Uh, there are certain elements of it that are, but the part that is, but the party itself is not. It's just plain stupid. So, the week that we had at the institute gets into some of this stuff, and we start with a, with a piece by Philip Lee, entitled "Southern Cultural Genocide." And um, he begins with a quote uh, by a French novelist uh, who lived through communism. Uh, his books were banned until 1989. Um but he lived in, in Czechoslovakia for a time, and he lived again through the Nazis and the communists. His books were banned in Czechoslovakia until 1989, and that's because communism fell. But he said this, his name is Kundera. 
He said this, The first step in liquidating a people is to erase its memory, destroy its books, its culture, its history, then have somebody write new books, manufacture a new culture, invent a new history. Before long, the nation will begin to forget what it is and what it was. Milan Kundera. So Lee says, until recently, he didn't think this was going to happen in the United States. There's no way. There's no way that a modern cultural genocide could take place in the United States. That is until now. Because of the removal of Confederate monuments, the attack on the South, the attack on Southern history. And he says he's flabbergasted, essentially, by what's going on in America. Now, what we're going to see in the pieces this week is this wasn't necess- this isn't a new situation. It, it, it started taking place right at the end of the war, but right-thinking Americans realized what was happening and said, wait a second here, we're not going to do this. Southerners are Americans. Jefferson Davis is an American. Robert E. Lee is an American. We're not going to get in a situation where we are going to eradicate Southern history. We want these people to be part of America. They are Americans. We had a different view on what America was, or not just that, the political part of America. We, we, we didn't see the same. We didn't, we didn't have the same view on how to resist uh, perceived unconstitutional acts. But these people are still Americans. But it doesn't matter anymore. That position, that uh, reconciliation is now considered a pejorative Reconciliation to people interested in memory studies like David Blight is now pejorative. You don't want to be a reconciliationist. That's wrong. It's wrong to reconcile with Southerners. These people needed to be punished. And so you get stuff like the photo that uh, Philip Lee provided for a Confederate monument in uh, the at the Wilderness National Battlefield Park, which has got uh, just nasty language written on it spray-painted on it. And this is what you're seeing. If they can't tear down the monument, they destroy them. They vandalize them. And then it takes thousands of dollars to clean them up and repair them. And people that are supposed to be defending these things aren't doing a very good job of it. As Lee points out. So we begin with that. A real genocide, a, a beginning of a cultural genocide in America. And people are fine with this. And you, We have, a, we have an, a lecture given by Tom Fleming on our YouTube page on this same topic. And you should see the comments under there. The South deserves to be wiped out. The South deserves an ethnic cleansing. White Southerners are evil. Uh, the the uh, Confederacy was bad. The Confederacy was wrong. I mean, these are these are Nice things that are said. You should see some of the other stuff on the comments. So you begin with that, and then this is where you go from there. And again, a lot of this stuff is being said not by people on the left. You expect it. And then you just realize these people are morons. The problem is, you know, we're not, uh, the the people there are not really interested in, in logic. They're interested in emotion. These are emotional responses. To call the people the names that they do, they're having an emotional response to an illogical emotional emotional response, which emotional responses often are illogical. And so we're we're arguing two different things on two different playing fields. It really is the problem with modern American political discourse. You have emotivists, and you have people that argue in tradition and logic. Um, 
and experience. Not reason. It's not reason. It's experience. And you can't really argue with someone who is emotionally invested in something because they're never going to hear you. You have to capture the people that can actually think. And unfortunately, there are fewer and fewer of those in America that can actually think. And that's the byproduct of the modern American education system. You're told what to put down on the test and how to feel about things. And if you don't feel those proper things, then you're ostracized. So we're in a very serious situation here. A slippery slope is, uh, you know, it's often a, said it's a logical fallacy to say it's a slippery slope, but I, I don't think that in this particular case it is a logical fallacy. You can see where this is going in America over time, where it will go over time. Right now there are enough right-thinking people to say, no, 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 we can't, we can't, we want to keep the monuments up. So, but what's that going to be in 20 years when, again, the people that are going through the education system, the younger people are, who are told what to think and how to feel about these things, they're told how to feel about these things. And they're basing their, their decisions on to take things down or contextualize things on feeling, not logic, on feeling, not tradition. Thankfully, that wasn't the case right after the war. The piece we ran on Tuesday by yours truly, A Secession Treason, is a review of two books with Malice Towards Some, Treason and Loyalty in the Civil War Era by William Blair, and Secession on Trial, The Treason Prosecution of Jefferson Davis by Cynthia Nicoletti. Both have been released in the last few years, uh, the Blair book in 2014 and the Nicoletti book last year, 2017. And essentially, they're dealing with this issue of treason. What was the act of secession in 60 and 61 treason. And there hasn't really been a, been a whole lot of scholarly interest in this particular topic. I mean, you had, right after the war, you had Davis himself and Stevens and Bledsoe and others writing books about treason and secession and saying, no, it wasn't treason, it's the American principles, it's the American tradition, and giving historical examples, defending it based on an original understanding of the Constitution, but now these books are just simply called lost cause treatises, and they're swept aside. Thankfully, you have people that are willing to look at this issue, and, and Blair and Nicoletti do that. Now, Blair does a better job than Nicoletti, even though uh, he's not sympathetic with the position. He does admit that, well, uh, during the war there were abuses that took place. The Lincoln administration did abuse the Constitution, though he doesn't think it was very bad. He, he doesn't like the idea that people that say Lincoln was a tyrant or a dictator, he doesn't, he doesn't agree with that. But he does at least admit, well, there are some things going on here, and there was malice towards some. Some people were abused by the Lincoln regime. But the interesting thing is that after the war was over, it seemed that people like Bledsoe and Davis and Stevens had actually won the argument. The hearts and minds of the people, they had won it. Because the treason coin came up heads, as he says. It, it actually, people didn't start, didn't use this language anymore. In fact, what he essentially says is that this charge of treason was simply a political charge, not a legal one. It was a way to rally people around the flag. We've got to get those traitors in the South. And once the war was over, wait, wait, wait a second here. No, we really can't say it was treason. We had to use this as a charge, but, you know, we'll, we'll let these people go. So there really wasn't any evidence of treason. And Nicoletti essentially says the same thing. 
that the arguments for it were so powerful uh, in terms of secession as not treason, the arguments against this charge of treason were so powerful that Davis could not have been prosecuted or convicted, which is why he was released. And enough Northerners believed that, too, that they funded his bail. So here you have two mainstream academic works essentially siding with Bledsoe, Davis, and Stevens. Now, Nicoletti, Nicoletti's book, the introduction to her book, is a fine example of why this is problematic for an academic to write. She pleads, essentially, in the beginning that she doesn't agree with the South. She goes out of her way to say the secession was based on white supremacy and uh, that she doesn't like the lost cause because she wants a job and tenure. She says, look, I hope this doesn't prevent me from getting a job because I wrote this book. That says a lot about the modern academy. This type of work, something that's so controversial, this should be celebrated. Hey, this person is willing to tackle a controversial subject, and they look at it from all points of view. This is a real academic work. But no, she has to say, please hire me. I'm not really one of them. I'm not one of these, quote-unquote, neo-Confederates. Please hire me. It's a sad indictment of the historical profession, but the historical profession is driving this Southern cultural genocide. It's driving that position. It's driving it. Though the people at the time didn't even have the gall to call it treason after the war was over. But what you get are a bunch of modern armchair generals, Monday morning quarterbacks, who say that they would hang every secession if they had the chance, that they would have fearfully punished the South, the South would have been laid waste, well, they don't realize as it was. The only thing that didn't happen is these people weren't hung. But as Philip Lee has pointed out in his book, Southern Reconstruction, the South was laid waste. The South was fearfully punished. As the Kennedy brothers have pointed out, it was punished by poverty. So it was punished. But even abolitionists after the war, there were some that said, look, you can't, you can't fault these people, Southerners, for defending the principles of 1776. We may not agree with them, but you can't do it. So the problem with all of this, again, the problem with all of this is that we have modern Monday morning quarterbacks, modern armchair generals, modern Republicans, who are more of a problem, who are saying things that were not even supported by the people that fought the South when the war was over. This charge of disloyalty of treason is not conservative. It's not American. But yet, here we are in 2018, and that is a charge that's being leveled against Southerners in 2018. But in 1867, the idea was completely dropped. Now, it didn't mean that there weren't Republicans who wanted to punish the South. 1867 is the first Reconstruction Act. Then you have military reconstruction. So certainly, the radical Republicans wanted to punish the South, and they tried to do so fearfully. Because, as they did in 1868, they waved the bloody shirt, 
General Grant wins the election, and so we have a different chapter. And we'll talk about Andrew Johnson here in a second and why his presidency is important. Uh, in fact, I've, I've said Andrew Johnson was one of the best presidents in American history. He's often put at the bottom. Any, if you go and look at these presidential rankings, if when you go to the bottom, generally anyone at the bottom, they're pretty good. Not all of them, but the ones at the top, generally pretty bad. Not all of them, but usually that's the way it works. Uh, because the historical profession is just plain, plain ignorant. They're just, they are, again, oftentimes told what to think and how to think it. And if you want a job, you better not you better not deviate from the acceptable opinion of the modern academy. Don't do it because we won't give you a job in tenure. We won't even we won't even interview you because these people really are not interested in in ideas or thoughts or real history. What they're interested in is patting themselves on the back and making themselves feel smart. And if they have people that think like them, well, that makes them feel smart and that makes them feel better. And they get awards, and they get tenure, and they get chairs, and they get all kinds of things, accolades thrown their way, endowed chairs. But that's how you do it. To them, that's how you do it. And so you have people that will be your sycophants. Nicoletti didn't do that, and so she's pleading to hire her. And I think she'll get hired out of this because she says all the right things in the introduction. Well, I don't really agree with the Confederacy. They're all white supremacists, and they're all... Um, essentially traitors. I, I, I agree, but I mean, this is the argument that was made against it, and so I'm just going to tell you what was said. It's just wrong. Even though she says, well, I find myself, this is interesting, she said, I find myself looking at the arguments and defending Davis and thinking, wow, they're pretty strong. Yeah, you think? You think? But yet she can't go far enough. She, she won't go over the edge because she's got to toe that line, you see. So when you get to Lee and the piece that we ran on Wednesday by again Aaron Wolf, who was uh, one of the editors of Chronicles Magazine, uh, which is uh, a great magazine. Uh, he's a senior editor for Chronicles, in fact. The title of the piece is Awake for the Living, Lee and the Feeling of Loyalty. And, of course, the charge against Lee is he wasn't loyal. But what he says is he's actually loyal in the purest sense. Political loyalty is one thing, but what are you being loyal to when you take an oath to defend the Constitution, which is what you do when you are in the military? You take an oath to defend the Constitution. So uh, that is a particular type of loyalty. And Lee took an oath to do that, to defend the Constitution. And if the government abuses the Constitution, your first loyalty is to the document, not to the government. But not just that. Lee, as Wolf points out, could not raise his hand against his native people, meaning Virginians, or his native state, or his family. Remember, the Lee family had been in Virginia at this point for 200 years. Now, there certainly were Lees. There were a few that fought with the Union. they made a choice to fight against tradition. To fight against their family and their people. And you could say, well, yeah, but Lighthorse Harry Lee, I mean, uh, this is George Washington's right-hand man. 
Right, so you're, you're fighting against what Washington and Lee wanted in the United States. Light Horse Lee. Uh, we don't know. I mean, look, Southerners made a conscious, said it all the time, we're fighting actually for George Washington. We're fighting for the principle that George Washington fought for in 1776. In fact, there was a proposal to call the Confederacy the Republic of Washington. There was a proposal to just keep the name the United States of America because they had the real, and even adopt the Constitution wholesale because they're really fighting for the Constitution. It's And, and call the North the United States of North America. <laughs> which would have been funny. But the fact is, Lee represented what's best in American society, to not raise his hand against his family, to be the leader of the family, to be the man of the house. Of course, that's now politically incorrect to say. But his feeling of loyalty was to his people first, not to some government some abstract government that abuses power. Even after Fort Sumter, he was saying he's not so certain he really wants to do this. He wants to raise his hand against the United States. He didn't like the idea of it. But yet when the United States became abusive, he believed he had no choice, particularly when his family was in the crosshairs, right? It's, it's, uh, Virginia was going to be under assault. He couldn't raise his hand against his native state, against his people, Virginians. Jefferson called Virginia's country. He couldn't do it. And so that is the feeling of loyalty. Family. Family. Your core responsibility is to your family. As I say in my own po- podcast, is think locally, act locally. And that starts with your family. You have to make sure your family is first, is in order first. And then you work up. Your last loyalty is, in fact, to this abstract central authority. So taking the the pledge, for example, is ridiculous. You pledge allegiance to your family first. But, of course, conservatism means now some abstract love of capitalism or universal democracy or whatever the case may be. That's... It's not conservative at all. Conservatives who you know rally around the flag when their eyes have seen the glory, as Wolf says, that this is not conservative. This is abstract idealism, which idealism is not conservative. In fact, conservatism, there is no ism when it comes to conservatism. It's not, not a set of ideas. It's tradition. It's the thing that is, and that has been, and that has existed. And, of course, that's what Lee is fighting for. That's what Southerners are fighting for. They're fighting for real America, for old America. You had a radical transformation of America taking place in the North during the war. And then you had real America in the South. The principles of real America. And we may not, I mean, people may not like that. They may not like real America. And, but, and, and so the left is perfectly open about that. Yeah, I mean, we want to tear that down. The problem is the right, the conservatives, who want to tear it down too. So who is really defending anything out there anymore except for abstract notions of capitalism and democracy? 
and this, as Jaffa called it, equality, how equality is actually conservative. This, this equality, as Bradford pointed out, with a capital E, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, it's, it's the antithesis of conservatism, quote-unquote, or if you want to have an ism. It's the antithesis of conservative, is better put. So when you get to the piece on Thursday, Two Southern Presidents in History, the, the point of this particular piece and, and uh, how it applies to this week is the end of the article. It's a comparison between Andrew Johnson and Jefferson Davis. And Jefferson Davis, of course, a real American. Uh, a man who had grown up as part of this American tradition. We, we often don't think about that with Davis but you, know, you look at who he was. He's Zachary Taylor's uh, son-in-law for a time, one of the great war heroes. He was Secretary of War, Senator from Mississippi. Uh, his family had defended American independence, had fought for it again during the War of 1812. He was as American as you could get. Went to West Point. In contrast to Lincoln, which, of course, is not the point of this piece, but in contrast to Lincoln, where, yeah, Lincoln did have uh, family members who fought in the American War for Independence, but uh, his career as a as someone who was defending America, real America, was uh, quite scanty. Uh, here's a guy that was a trial lawyer and made a lot of money defending big business and uh, I guess if that's American, grew up on the frontiers. In fact, you know, James Byard called him an ordinary Western man who had no conception of American government. He didn't understand real America. Now, Andrew Johnson, being a guy from East Tennessee, of course, sides with the Union. In fact, when he becomes president, there's a thought that Johnson's going to punish all these people. He put out a reward to capture Jefferson Davis, and he's going to go out and uh, really take it to these people to these Southerners who seceded from the Union. But when Johnson woke up from this stupor that he was in, this uh, this uh, euphoria that the war is over and this uh, vindictive position, he realized, wait a second here, now this doesn't really work for me because these radicals really aren't my allies. Jefferson Davis is actually my ally in the, in, in the whole scheme of things. Southerners are actually my allies still. And so Davis is released. Johnson doesn't really uh, pursue a very vindictive course at all after 1867. In fact, this is why, one of the reasons why the Republicans wanted him out. He kept vetoing their legislation. <gasps> the horror. But here's a guy who during the war, Johnson, said that you know he wants to punish Southerners. But then when the war is over, wait a second here. I don't know about that. Grant, same thing. I don't know about that. Now, these people don't need to be hung. They just had a different view of America. And yet, somehow, the people that had waged the war are seen as uh, you know, wrong in, in pursuing this position because they're interested in reconciliation. The point of all this, and the last piece on Friday, I'm running out of time here, the point of all this, all the news is fit to print, is that sensationalization, and of course this piece gets into uh, sensationalized news during the war and how much of it was quote-unquote fake news. What we're seeing today 
is fake news. What we're seeing today about the South and the entire weight of popular opinion, the academy, acceptable, fashionable opinion, this is all fake news. The weight of it all, is what we're seeing is partisanship at a level not seen since the 19th century when it comes to news, but it's all under the guise of objectivity. If these people would just come out and say, look, we hate the South, but they won't say that. They'll say they love the South. They're trying to save the South from itself. But that's not, I mean, it's not the agenda. The idea is to wipe out dissent. It's to wipe out dissidents, as one uh, little twit said back in, in Time magazine not long ago, a couple of years ago. It's to wipe out dissidents. It's to wipe out this America that does not fit with the mainstream narrative, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. That is what people think the Declaration means. That is what people think the Constitution means, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. That's the real problem. It all comes down to that pivot point, 1863. That's when things pivot. Before that, people still thought of the Declaration of the Constitution. There were still people even at the time saying, this thing is, this Gettysburg Address is just idiotic. But now you're told to recite this thing as a school child. Go out and learn the Gettysburg Address. So, were Davis and Lee traitors? Absolutely not. Were they loyal? Absolutely. They were loyal in the conservative sense. And that's what we need to understand about Lee and Davis and the South. They were loyal to an original understanding of America and to family and to people and to place. Until next time, good day.